In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we are counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number two, the Iran-Contra affair. When President Ronald Reagan's administration illegally traded weapons of war to Iran, an enemy nation, to covertly fund a Nicaraguan rebel army known as the Contras. July 16, 1985. At the Bethesda Naval Medical Center in Maryland, President Ronald Reagan was recovering from an abdominal surgery to remove a cancerous polyp from his large intestine. Though just a few days had passed since the operation, Reagan was already seeing visitors to discuss official matters. On the top of the list was National Security Advisor Robert McFarlane. He urgently needed to discuss a top-secret plan. There were talks to sell Iran weapons in exchange for the release of American hostages who had been kidnapped by Iranian-backed terrorist groups. But McFarlane's scheme directly conflicted with the administration's public denouncement of Iran. Just two weeks earlier, the president had called Iran's Islamic Republic a confederation of terrorist states and bluntly emphasized, America will never make concessions to terrorists. The National Security Advisor would need the president's direct approval before beginning negotiations with the so-called terrorist state. Only Reagan and McFarlane knew exactly what was said that day, but McFarlane left the hospital room meeting believing he would have Reagan's permission to begin trading arms with Iran. Perhaps owing to his medication or a knack for self-preservation, President Reagan would later repeatedly deny that he had any knowledge whatsoever of the Iran arms deals, despite the mountains of evidence suggesting otherwise. Welcome to Political Scandals, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today we'll explore the complicated and controversial history of President Reagan's invasive foreign policy in Iran and Nicaragua. These so-called intervention efforts by the Reagan administration serve twofold. They influenced the leadership of both nations and broke countless American laws. Coming up, we'll explore the administration's elaborate clandestine scheme. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. To understand the scope of the Iran-Contra affair, we first need to explore what was happening in both Iran and Nicaragua when Ronald Reagan took office in January of 1981. While both countries had been allies of the United States just a few years prior, they rapidly turned into foreign policy nightmares. Iran was one of the United States' closest allies when the country was under the monarchy of Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. The Pahlavi dynasty had been in power in Iran since the 1920s, but while the U.S. was supportive of the Shah, he was unpopular amongst the Iranian people. The Shah was reviled by the Shia Muslim majority in his country for his secularization and westernization of the government. Some liberals, meanwhile, regarded the Iranian leader's ties with the United States as suspicious. They called his administration neo-colonial. Many Iranians were still outraged at the U.S. for taking part in the 1953 coup that deposed popular Iranian Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. He had nationalized the nation's oil industry and consolidated power away from the Shah. In light of this, to them, the Shah was nothing but a puppet of the West. The royal family was also accused of rampant corruption. This was all too evident with the Shah's behavior. He'd even consolidated vast swaths of land for his family's corporation by forcing landowners to sell. Otherwise, they were threatened with imprisonment. Widespread protests began to surge in January 1978 and continued for months. They reached their fever pitch that summer when hundreds of thousands of Iranian civilians demanded the end of the monarchy. Ayatollah Rohola Khomeini, who had been exiled from Iran for instigating a previous revolution effort in the 1960s, became the figurehead of the Iranian revolution. The conservative religious leader used intense language calling for martyrdom and the destruction of Western influence. Meanwhile, the Shah attempted to retain his ever-weakening grip on power. After failed attempts to negotiate and acquiesce to the protesters' demands, he was forced to flee the country on January 16, 1979, but not before setting up a provisional government. Which failed almost immediately. Just a few months after Ayatollah Khomeini's triumphant return to Iran on February 1, 1979, the religious figure became Iran's supreme leader. But unlike the democracy he promised, a clear theocracy was established. Iran would now be known as an Islamic Republic. With anti-Western and anti-Zionist views, Khomeini immediately severed ties with the American government and declared Israel illegitimate. In his impassioned speeches, he called America the Great Satan. Iranian-American relations were further soured that fall, when on November 4, 1979, a group of Iranian college students stormed the American embassy in Tehran. They initially took 62 Americans hostage. The subsequent Iran hostage crisis lasted 444 days. Iran, meanwhile, was dealing with two enemies at once. The United States, as it tried to rescue its hostages, and Iraq, who had invaded the country, triggering the Iran-Iraq War. 
After a failed rescue operation, President Jimmy Carter and Khomeini finally reached a deal to release the hostages. The Algiers Declaration was signed on January 19, 1981, just one day before Ronald Reagan's inauguration. Ironically, Reagan had attacked Carter while on his presidential campaign for inaction on the Iran hostage crisis. Across the world, too, more unrest was at play. Much like Iran, Nicaragua, too, experienced a recent revolution. But to Reagan's dismay, their revolution resulted in a socialist government with communist leanings. Nicaragua had been ruled by the Somoza family since 1937, and their dictatorship had been supported by the U.S. government. The Somoza regime was notoriously corrupt, making suspicious deals with American corporations, all while ignoring the vast majority of Nicaraguans who lived below the poverty line. By the 1960s, the Sandinista National Liberation Front was founded in opposition to the Somoza government. Inspired by Cuban revolutionaries, the Sandinistas were Marxist-Leninists who wished to see Nicaragua become a socialist state, free from its current economic inequalities. After more than a decade of violence between the two sides, the Sandinistas got the upper hand. In August of 1978, they staged a massive kidnapping operation. They seized the National Palace and took the Nicaraguan Congress hostage. By 1979, the Sandinistas had taken control of the government. The new Sandinista government immediately made sweeping changes. A national emergency was declared, followed by land seizures from rich Nicaraguans, a nationalization of banks, and an abolition of courts. And in a sign that the new regime would perhaps not be any more democratic than the last, they also declared elections unnecessary. Instead of cutting off aid to the new socialist government, President Carter hoped to curry favor with the Sandinistas. The aid packages continued, just as the U.S. had done when Somoza was in power. The Sandinistas received $55 million in relief funds. However, the Sandinista government wasn't loyal to one ally. It also forged an alliance with the Soviet Union. Even more worrisome for the U.S., the Sandinistas began supporting socialist revolutionaries in El Salvador. In light of this, anti-Sandinista groups began popping up, such as the Nicaraguan Democratic Force, who called for free elections. By early 1980, it became clear to Carter that the Sandinistas would not de-radicalize. His policy towards Nicaragua shifted. Carter authorized the CIA to provide propaganda and support to Nicaraguan opposition forces, but simultaneously prohibited armed intervention. And the U.S.'s Nicaraguan policy would change once again when President Ronald Reagan assumed office shortly after in 1981. Reagan was fiercely anti-communist, and Carter's slight intervention in Nicaragua would be massively amplified under the new Republican president. Just a few weeks after his inauguration, Reagan cut off all aid to the Nicaraguan government. He had no interest in giving assistance to a communist country. Like many Republicans, Reagan viewed communists as enemies of freedom and saw socialism as a direct attack on the capitalist ideology he championed. The new president also took an aggressive stance against the Soviet Union. 
America was still in the midst of the Cold War, after all. A proponent of the domino theory, Reagan believed that if one nation fell to communism in a region, then the surrounding nations would soon follow. This was despite the fact that the U.S. had exited the quagmires of Vietnam and Korea, having failed to defeat those countries' communist governments. Regardless of the president's beliefs, his administration tried to negotiate with the Sandinistas to stop aiding radicals in El Salvador. Reagan was determined to not let communism in Nicaragua spread to neighboring countries. When negotiations failed, though, Reagan escalated his anti-Sandinista campaign. On December 1, 1981, he authorized the CIA to support the Contras with weapons and funds. The Contras were a right-wing Nicaraguan rebel group. This authorization greatly exceeded the administration's stated mission in Central America. Congress's oversight committees were supposed to be informed of all major covert actions ordered by the president. Yet the Reagan administration kept them in the dark. Reagan's foreign policy was proving more bombastic than Carter's. In a speech to the British Parliament in June of 1982, Reagan laid out his agenda. His administration would unflinchingly support the democratization of all countries in the midst of socialist and communist revolutions. He insisted it was America's duty to assist the campaign for democracy wherever possible. Clearly, to stop the spread of communism in Central America alone wouldn't satisfy the president. He wanted to eliminate it altogether. Regardless of his public pledge, the CIA's actions in Nicaragua remained completely secret to the American public and even Congress. But that all changed by November 8, 1982. The cover of Newsweek featured a picture of a U.S. military advisor training two Honduran soldiers with the headline, America's Secret War, Target, Nicaragua. The bombshell report outlined the United States' covert support of the Contras. It even quoted anonymous intelligence agents who argued that the Contras had a chance of overthrowing the Sandinistas. Many Americans were furious that their country was engaged in a so-called secret war. And Congress, which had already begun to have concerns about American intervention in Nicaragua earlier in the year, certainly wasn't pleased that both the CIA and Reagan administration had failed to formally inform its intelligence committees of their actions, despite the legal obligation to do so. Many Democrats also questioned the morality of supporting the Contras. While Reagan said the Contras were the moral equivalent to the Founding Fathers, the reality was murkier. The Contras obtained much of their funding not only from the U.S., but also from Nicaragua's cocaine trade. Even worse, many publications reported that the Contras' guerrilla tactics often targeted civilians. Congress needed to put a swift check on Reagan's administration. On December 21, 1982, the first Boland Amendment was passed. The legislation, authored by Democratic Representative Edward Boland, was intended to limit U.S. intelligence agency assistance to the Contras. However, Reagan's administration almost immediately found a workaround. Reagan officials could still use the funds that had already been set aside. And more, 
Reagan's national security advisor from October 1983 to December 1985, Robert McFarlane, met with Israeli officials. He tried to convince them to send the Contra's weapons the Israeli military had seized from the Palestine Liberation Organization. This was all in addition to some creative and wildly egregious accounting done by the U.S. military. They would label the weapons the Contras needed as surplus, which gave them a zero-dollar value. These arms were then transferred to the CIA and eventually the Contras. Technically, the weapons couldn't be considered support if they had no value. Meanwhile, Reagan's foreign policy on Iran was equally murky. Although the trade embargo with Iran had been relaxed after the release of the U.S. hostages, tensions remained high between the two countries. By the spring of 1983, the U.S. State Department started a diplomatic program called Operation Staunch, which sought to dissuade foreign nations from selling weapons to Iran. Still at war with Iraq, the nation was willing to pay especially high prices. But while the Reagan administration appeared tough on Iran publicly, a much different story was unfolding behind the scenes. Shortly after Operation Staunch began, a group of senior Reagan officials commissioned a study on the benefits of selling weapons to Iran. The study concluded that America should, in fact, sell weapons to Iran. If they didn't, the Soviet Union would step in to do so, allowing Iran to fall under Soviet influence. Acting on this new information, McFarlane talked to Iranian officials to begin negotiations by the summer of 1985. After the success of these clandestine conversations, Reagan's cabinet began serious consideration of illegally bypassing Congress to trade weapons with Iran. This planning went side by side with the continued call to other nations to not trade with the dangerous Islamic Republic. Coming up, the Reagan administration's handling of Iran and Nicaragua collide, while the National Security Council bends the law to its will. Hello, listeners. It's Richard from Parcast Network. We all know that when it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, and some don't. In Our Love Story, the new Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. 
Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom and gift mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now back to the story. In the early 1980s, President Ronald Reagan's administration was implementing two very different approaches to international relations. Though Congress had explicitly forbidden military intervention in socialist Nicaragua, Reagan had always championed himself as an anti-communist crusader he simply couldn't resist. In January of 1984, the CIA began to secretly mine harbors in Nicaragua. According to the Hague Convention of 1907, this provocation was considered an act of war. Despite the magnitude of such an action, though, Congress was once again not informed of the CIA's mission. Just three months later, though, on April 6, 1984, the Wall Street Journal broke the story. It alleged that the president had personal knowledge of the mining operation. This revelation even upset Republican congressmen, who were appalled at the administration's brazen disregard for the legislative process. Chair of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, Republican Barry Goldwater, wrote to CIA Director William Casey, trying to summarize his thoughts. In regard to the president's approval of the mining, Goldwater finished emphatically by saying, quote, I am pissed off. This made it evident to the Reagan administration and the CIA that they would not receive Congress's financial backing for the Contras. But as American involvement in Nicaragua grew, so did the budget. To keep the project going, they needed a new revenue stream. CIA Director Casey suggested that McFarlane and the NSC look into raising money from other countries. While Reagan's Secretary of State, George Shultz, had qualms about the legality of soliciting foreign aid, McFarlane did not. On June 25, 1984, McFarlane secretly met with Reagan, Vice President George H.W. Bush, and other top officials to discuss using third-party funding of the Contras. Just a few weeks later, McFarlane collected millions of dollars from Saudi Arabia for the Nicaraguan rebels. Though they'd found a new way to fund the operation, the Reagan administration still had to deal with an angry Congress. The October 12th passing of the second Boland Amendment made this clear. It prohibited funds from any agency or entity of the United States involved in intelligence activities for the purpose of supporting military operations in Nicaragua. But once again, the Reagan administration immediately circumvented the amendment using technicalities. Third-party money meant, on paper, they weren't funding the Contras. And the NSC wasn't technically an intelligence agency. And money could be funneled through it. Despite Congress's objections, President Reagan would not give up on his fight for Nicaragua. In his State of the Union address on February 6, 1985, he declared, We must not break faith with those who are risking their lives. On every continent, from Afghanistan to Nicaragua, to defy Soviet-supported aggression. Thus, in an effort to sidestep the Boland Amendment, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, a senior official at the NSC, 
set up the Enterprise. It was an arms smuggling network led by an Air Force officer turned arms dealer named Richard Secord. Secord and the Enterprise were tasked with funneling millions of dollars worth of weapons to the Contras, munitions that had been funded by Saudi Arabia, Taiwan, and other private donors, often in exchange for meetings with Reagan officials. As money once again flowed into Nicaragua, Reagan and his team turned their attention back to Iran. An official arms embargo had been placed on the country after Hezbollah, an Iran-backed terrorist organization, bombed an American bunker in Lebanon in 1983. Adding to the tension, many Americans, including the CIA chief in Beirut, William F. Buckley, had been kidnapped by Iranian-backed terrorist groups in 1983 and 84. On June 30, 1985, President Reagan gave a public speech condemning the kidnappings and reiterating his refusal to negotiate with terrorists, saying, The United States gives terrorists no rewards and no guarantees. We make no concessions. We make no deals. Just three days later, though, McFarlane met with Israeli officials to outline a potential deal with Iran, an exchange of arms for hostages. While McFarlane believed the trade would improve Iranian-American relations, an arms deal would explicitly violate the arms embargo. Just two months later, in August, Reagan approved the plan. Israel began selling U.S.-made weapons to Iran. Although Iran and Israel were sworn enemies, Iran had accepted the deal, given its desperation for weapons and its conflict with Iraq. Israel, meanwhile, believed that if Iran and Iraq were distracted with each other, they would ignore their mutual enemy, Israel. That hunch proved correct. Over the next several months, hundreds of missiles would trade hands and several American hostages would be freed. However, just three months later, an operation organized by Oliver North's Enterprise imploded when Iran received fewer Hawk missiles than it demanded. The nation accused Israel, the middleman, of swapping the missiles for older models. In response, Iran refused to release any hostages. Adding to the mess, North had illegally used a plane owned by a CIA front company to ferry the weapons. The CIA deputy director, John McMahon, had ordered his subordinates not to participate in North's scheme. He was livid that a CIA plane had been used and that North and McFarlane had gone behind his back. On November 25th, he declared that the CIA would not get involved with NSC covert actions without the president's written approval. Despite North's snafu, President Reagan still supported his mission. On December 5, 1985, he signed a retroactive order sanctioning all of North and McFarlane's previous actions. One day earlier, Robert McFarlane resigned, though he continued to be involved with the Iran weapons deals. McFarlane was replaced by John M. Poindexter. Reagan allegedly told Poindexter that the CIA finding, a document which serves as a presidential directive, he had signed must be kept secret. Despite the fact these findings are required to be delivered to congressional committees to justify covert operations. 
Nonetheless, on his first day on the job as National Security Advisor, Poindexter locked the CIA finding in a safe without making any copies. Just a month later, on January 17, 1986, President Reagan signed a presidential CIA finding which authorized direct sales of arms to Iran from the United States. This cut out Israel as the middleman. Again, this was occurring despite the fact that there was still an arms embargo in place against Iran. The finding requested the CIA not inform Congress because of the extreme sensitivity of the project. By the end of February, the U.S. had sent 1,000 missiles to Iran, yet not a single hostage had been released. In fact, several more kidnappings had occurred. To address this problem, Robert McFarlane, now working as an advisor, traveled to Tehran to try and negotiate with Iranian leaders. Unfortunately, the negotiations fell apart. McFarlane grimly concluded that the Iranians had little interest in actually releasing hostages. Despite not retrieving hostages from Iran, the U.S. was receiving money. Suddenly, there was a new revenue stream that could be used for the enterprise. On April 4th, North wrote the Diversion Memorandum, which suggested that $12 million from the Iran arms deals be transferred to the Contras. Beginning in May, millions of dollars started flowing to the Contras. Now, covert operations in Iran were officially linked to covert operations in Nicaragua. And it finally appeared that the Reagan administration had enough money to properly back the Contras. That is, until it all, quite literally, came crashing down weeks later. On October 5, 1986, a Nicaraguan Sandinista soldier shot down a cargo plane en route to resupply Contra troops. The two American pilots were killed, and an American named Eugene Hassenfuss was captured. The Sandinistas questioned Hassenfuss, who confessed that he was part of a CIA operation that was shipping military supplies to the Contras. Upon hearing Hassenfuss's claims, President Reagan and his administration vehemently denied them. When Reagan was asked whom Hassenfuss had been working for, Reagan simply said, not us. Many in Congress were skeptical of the denials. In accordance with the Boland Amendment, the Reagan administration was not supposed to be directly assisting the Contra's military efforts. Still, they weren't willing to say that the president was lying. Unbelievably, though, Reagan still had an even bigger scandal on the horizon. By November 3rd, a Lebanese magazine, Al Shira, had published an expose about Robert McFarlane meeting with Iranian officials to negotiate an arms for hostage deal. This left the American press and Congress demanding answers. It seemed that high-level officials in Reagan's administration were in clear violation of the law. It went against both the Iranian arms embargo and the Arms Export Control Act, which stipulated that Congress be informed of major weapon deals. Adding to the controversy, Reagan had publicly pledged that he would not negotiate with Iran for hostages. President Reagan waited over a week to officially address the matter. In a speech on November 13th, he finally declared, we did not repeat 
did not trade weapons or anything else for hostages, nor will we. But Congress was not going to take Reagan's word for it this time. They would demand a thorough investigation. Coming up, the investigation uncovers a trove of evidence, and Reagan administration officials begin to fall like dominoes. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. By November of 1986, President Reagan and his administration were in full panic mode. The press had uncovered details of the illicit Iran arms deal, and Americans were outraged. Though his November 19th press conference was meant to quell this anger, the president simply obfuscated the truth once again. He claimed that the weapons given to Iran were inconsequential, that no third-party country had taken part, and that no arms-for-hostage deals had been made. Few believed this statement, and even those in Reagan's administration couldn't deny the situation was spiraling out of control. To address the issue, Attorney General Edwin Meese told Reagan that he would complete an informal inquiry to get a coherent picture of what really happened in Iran. Meese asked John Poindexter, a national security advisor, to pull together all the NSC files. Instead, Poindexter destroyed one of the most damning documents of the whole operation, the retroactive CIA finding President Reagan had signed on December 5th, which outlined the 1985 Arms for Hostage Iran deal. Poindexter, understandably, believed the finding would implicate the president. So... He proceeded to tear up the paper and throw it away. While Mises' intention was to protect Reagan, his job was soon further complicated. His assistants accidentally discovered Oliver North's diversion memo. That bombshell discovery created an even more enormous problem for Mises, the connection of money between Iran and Nicaragua. North was apparently shocked that the attorney general had discovered his diversion memo. Sensing that he would become the scapegoat for the entire controversy, North spent over five hours in his office shredding documents. At the November 24, 1986 National Security Meeting, Attorney General Meese laid out his version of events. While Meese's account was hardly rooted in reality, it did protect the president. The memo from the meeting, written by White House Chief of Staff Donald T. Regan, said, Tough as it seems, blame must be put at NSC's door. A rogue operation going on without the president's knowledge or sanction. Several officials at this meeting knew this was undeniably false, including Schultz and National Security Advisor Poindexter. Meese also knew it was a blatant lie, since several of the officials he had interviewed had said Reagan knew about the Iran operation. But there was still the matter of the diversion memo. Meese's strategy was for Reagan to get ahead of it, as if to take the stink off it. 
He suggested that the president inform the American public of its existence before it leaked to the press. At a press conference the next day, Meese and Reagan revealed that proceeds from secret arms deals in Iran had, in fact, been used to fund Nicaraguan rebels. In his own defense, the president said, he was not fully informed of the operation. Also announced at that press conference was the resignation of John Poindexter and the firing of Oliver North. In an effort to make his White House appear transparent, President Reagan announced the creation of a special review board to look into the National Security Council. The Tower Commission, as it became known, interviewed 80 witnesses, including the president himself. Towards the end of former Senator John Tower's inquiry, investigators discovered that Poindexter had deleted thousands of White House files, which they were then able to recover and examine. While the commission was evaluating the NSC, Attorney General Meese knew that the Iran-Contra affair would also need to be investigated. The Reagan White House needed to avoid the appearance of a cover-up at all costs. They couldn't repeat the humiliation of Watergate. So on December 19, 1986, at Meese's request, a three-judge panel appointed Lauren Walsh, former Deputy Attorney General under Eisenhower, to be independent counsel investigating Iran-Contra. Walsh naively thought the investigation would be relatively straightforward. Little did he know the complicated tapestry would take over five years to investigate and prosecute. Just two months later, the Tower Commission finished its investigation, publishing their report on February 27, 1987. The report was surprisingly scathing considering that the president had hand-picked the investigators. The extensive report heavily criticized the actions of Caspar Weinberger, Donald Regan, John Poindexter, and Oliver North, among many others. Throughout the NSC, the commission found a widespread failure of responsibility. Even the president was condemned. The report stated that Reagan should have had better control over the NSC. Ultimately, the report blamed the Iran-Contra affair not on the president's choices, but on his lax management style. A few days after the Tower Commission report, March 4th, Reagan once again addressed the nation in hopes of mitigating damage to his reputation. He admitted that his administration had indeed participated in arms-for-hostage deals with Iran, despite his earlier denials. Reagan took full responsibility for the actions of his subordinates, but still denied that he had any knowledge of the transactions. The American public would chew on this shocking revelation for two months, until the House and the Senate finally began their joint hearing on Iran-Contra on May 5th. It would become the biggest televised set of hearings since Watergate. Congress interviewed all the key players in Iran-Contra over the course of several weeks. Witnesses described the extensive network of support for the Contras that Oliver North had developed, which included soliciting private donations in return for promised meetings with the president. Richard Secord also confirmed that the CIA and Defense Department were involved with the operations in support of the Nicaraguan rebels long after the Boland Amendment banned such action. While McFarlane insisted President Reagan had been aware of the Iran arms deal plan, 
Poindexter circled the wagons and at least partially claimed the president had not. Every witness's testimony seemed to implicate Oliver North. Still, North doggedly defended his actions, saying, I have never carried out a single act, not one, in which I did not have authority from my superiors. No matter how many fingers pointed to him, North was unwilling to be the fall guy. The Iran-Contra Congressional Report was drafted after Congress had heard hundreds of hours of testimony. On November 18, 1987, it was finally released. The Democrats' majority opinion was extremely critical of the Reagan administration, stating, The common ingredients of the Iran and Contra policies were secrecy, deception, and disdain for the law. While the report recommended several policy changes to improve transparency in covert operations, it ultimately concluded that the problem wasn't the written laws. It was that the Reagan administration refused to follow them. The minority report, written by Republicans, came to a quite different conclusion. Calling the majority's opinion hysterical, the Republicans stated, there was no constitutional crisis, no systematic disrespect for the rule of law, no grand conspiracy, and no administration-wide dishonesty or cover-up. Instead of criticizing the executive branch, like the majority report, the Republican report tried to shift blame by excoriating the legislative branch for undermining the president. Republicans were clearly worried that unlike the Tower Commission, the congressional report placed full blame on Reagan. It argued that the ultimate responsibility for the events in the Iran-Contra affair must rest with the president. It was the president's policy, not an isolated decision by North or Poindexter, to sell arms secretly to Iran and to maintain the Contras body and soul. And polls at the time reflected this conclusion. A majority of Americans didn't believe Reagan's story. But somehow, the Democrats never pushed for impeachment. There was very little political will for impeachment proceedings so soon after Watergate. And more, there was enough plausible deniability that most politicians thought there was no chance of Reagan actually being impeached. But while Congress's investigation had reached its conclusion, independent counsel Walsh's inquiry was just getting started. In the end, he brought criminal charges against 14 Reagan officials, including McFarlane, Poindexter, Weinberger, and North. The various trials lasted for five years, until 1992. Ultimately, McFarlane was given two years probation and a $20,000 fine, nearly $45,000 in today's money. North and Poindexter's convictions, though, were vacated on appeal due to issues with their immunized testimony. If the hope behind the lies and obfuscation was that Ronald Reagan might escape the controversy unscathed, it failed. The president's approval rating took a huge hit, going from 67% to 46% in just one month. Still, he was never officially punished for his role in the Iran-Contra affair. In fact, he was soon named the Teflon president by critics for his ability to remain unscathed despite scandal. Reagan was succeeded by his vice president, George H.W. Bush, 
who made clear efforts to distance himself from the incident. During Bush's campaign in 1988, he claimed he was out of the loop when it came to Iran-Contra. His diaries, which weren't revealed until years later, though, say otherwise. In one such diary, Bush claimed to be one of the few people who know fully the details. After Bush lost his bid for re-election, he pardoned six Reagan officials who had been part of Iran-Contra, including McFarlane and Weinberger, on one of his last days as president, Christmas Eve, 1992. Independent counsel Lawrence Walsh, who had now spent five years prosecuting Iran-Contra, did not mince words about the pardons. He didn't call it the Iran-Contra affair, but rather the Iran-Contra cover-up. While Reagan and his officials were largely spared, the United States' reputation abroad was permanently damaged. U.S. allies in the Middle East were outraged that the administration had been undermining their efforts to support Iraq with secret arms deals to Iran. The United States quickly became known as an unreliable ally. Its relationship with Iran didn't improve either. Iran believed the U.S. had mishandled their arms negotiations and accused Reagan of playing both sides of the Iraq-Iran tensions. Iran-Contra only served to reinvigorate Iran's antagonism towards the U.S. The consequences of the Iran-Contra affair in Nicaragua were even more dire. Many experts agree that Reagan's relentless commitment to fund the Contras artificially extended Nicaragua's civil war, protracting a conflict that resulted in an estimated 31,000 deaths. Additionally, 350,000 Nicaraguans were displaced and $9 billion in economic damage was incurred, the equivalent of $20 billion today. In total, the U.S. provided more than $400 million in aid to the Nicaraguan rebels, nearly a billion dollars in today's money. In 1990, well after Reagan's aid to the Contras had ceased, Sandinista leadership agreed to a democratic election. As a result, the anti-Sandinista political coalition, the National Opposition Union, won the presidency. Ironically, the Nicaraguan Communist Party was one part of that 14-party coalition. Nationally, the lack of consequences for those involved in the Iran-Contra scandal were concerning, to say the least. Many experts use it to point out the beginning of the post-truth era of American politics. It was all too evident that politicians could lie to the American public and get away with it. In fact, Ronald Reagan, the Teflon president, has since become a conservative figurehead, often touted as one of the greatest American presidents. His approval rating in 2002 stood at 73%, a number far higher than it ever was when he was president. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with our last episode of this season, number one on our countdown, Watergate. When President Nixon was caught covering up his involvement with a break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from ParCast. 
It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Matt Hartman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. Hi, it's Richard again. Searching for your new favorite show? Remember to follow the newest Spotify original from Parcast, Our Love Story. Every Tuesday, catch an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.